Well, if you'd keep your, uh, your Bibles open to Mark chapter 11, turn to verse 27. I wanted to start with a question this morning, and that is, are you a, a spiritually honest person? And I mean with, with yourself. Specifically, do you think when it comes to questions of Christianity and Jesus that you have an honest self-awareness? If you're a non-Christian, perhaps you've been on kind of a, a journey spiritually, investigating Jesus. Maybe you're a, a young person and you're trying to come to decisions for yourself to figure things out. I want to ask you, kind of what, what's holding you back from, from trusting Jesus and making him Lord of your life, if, if you're honest? Is, is it really about evidence? You know, if you just had a little more evidence or something to push you over the top, would, would you then believe and submit to him? Is it really about the uh, fact that, you know, so many... Christians are, are hypocrites. Do you really not know any Christians that aren't? I find that funny quite often when people say, oh, Christians, they're all hypocrites. And, I, and I'll say, do you think I'm a hypocrite? Oh, no, not you. What about those friends you know over there? No, well, not them. But you know they are. A lot of people are hypocrites. Is it really because you just want to keep an open mind? You know, you used to have that intellectual integrity. Is that really what it's about? What's really holding you back from making him your Lord, if you're honest? And, and Christians, if you kind of look at yourself, is, is the lordship of Jesus compartmentalized in your life? Is he, is he Lord over all the parts of your life or just certain parts? Is there an area of your life that you really, if you're honest, if you, if you look at it, you, you're not really giving that over to him? Maybe there's that, that hatred or bitterness that you just can't let go of. Or uh, your, your career life, you know, when you go to work, you kind of leave Jesus at the door. People at work don't even know that you're a Christian. Or it's that relationship maybe that you've been unwilling to let go of that you know you shouldn't be persisting in. You kind of block it out as if it doesn't exist. Why won't you fully surrender your life? What are you afraid of? What is your reticence really about, if you're honest? Now, I bring up this idea of, of kind of spiritual honesty, spiritual self-honesty, because the beginning of our text just begs this question, doesn't it? Look at verse 27 with me again. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he, that's Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? You see, it's just a couple days 
after Jesus has finally arrived at Jerusalem and entered in with much fanfare and drama. If you were here two weeks ago, you, you remember that, that, that Palm Sunday when the massive crowds came out and they kind of lined the road and started throwing down their, their, their garments and, and, uh, and palm branches to pave the way for Jesus. And they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're basically proclaiming this. This is the Messiah. And then Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem, went to the temple. And he began overturning tables and kicking out the money changers and claiming they were making God's house a den of robbers. And then he pronounced judgment on Israel by causing a fruitless fig tree to wither as a demonstration of the judgment that would come upon their fruitless religiosity. It was, it was quite a scene. And Jesus now is kind of bravely back in the temple just a day or two later, and, and the religious leaders come and confront him. And note that it says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders Right? It's, it's, a, it's a delegation of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. They come to confront him. And they have one question for him. What's your authority to do these things? Who gave you the right to do these things, to speak this way? Or to put it another way, who do you think you are? Now, at one level, it seems like a pretty honest question, right? Explain yourself. We want to know who you are. Why would you do these things? Explain yourself. But Jesus knows they aren't really asking. They don't really want to know. And, and he exposes them. He exposes their spiritual dishonesty. He exposes the lack of genuineness in their question. He knows if he just answers them straight out and says, look, I, I have authority from God. If he claims divine status, they will accuse him of blasphemy and just shut him down and try to destroy him. So he poses a question back. Look what he says in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, when you first read that, it seems like kind of an evasive maneuver, like he's kind of just sidetracking them. But he's actually getting right to the point. Because if they will engage with that question honestly, if they will say, well, let's think it through, this baptism of John. I mean, our scriptures do speak of of a forerunner to come before the Messiah to, to prepare the way by calling people to repent and return. That, that, that fits with John and his baptism. And actually, our scriptures do specifically speak of one who will come in, in the spirit of Elijah, who wore camel's hair and, and locust honey and lived in the desert. That, that's exactly like John. And actually, the people were all flocking to John and recognizing that he was filled with the Spirit and believing his words. So yeah, you know, his, his baptism does seem legitimate. It, 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 is, it is divine. It's from heaven. 
If they were to say that, well, then they would have to say, oh, and, and he baptized you, Jesus. He inaugurated your ministry. In fact, we were told that when he did, that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Oh, we, we understand where your authority comes from. We get it. But they don't do that, do they? They don't begin that process. They don't begin to engage. They don't think through that question. They just say, hmm, if we say he's from heaven, then he will say, well, why didn't you believe? And they don't want to do that. Then they would have to submit to him as Lord. But if we say from man, the people will be mad. And they, and they feared the people because the people believed John was a prophet. And, and without the people, they would have no authority and power. So they say, oh, here's our answer, Jesus. Uh, we, we don't know. We thought hard about it. We, we just can't figure it out. We don't know. You see, they don't know because they don't want to know, do they? They aren't honestly checking out Jesus so they can get to the truth about his authority, so they can respond to him appropriately as Lord if they need to. No, all their engagement with Jesus, all their appearing like, with this genuine uh, you know, religious inquiry is actually completely dishonest. They don't want to get to the bottom of who he is. They don't want to check out his authority. They just want to preserve their own authority, their own autonomy. And Jesus knows it. He's not fooled by their religiosity. He's not fooled by their apparent theological interest in inquiry. He knows their heart's he knows they are rejecting him. So, he knows it's very, it's very clear. Excuse me, my notes are out of order here. So when they say, we just don't know, he says, verse 33, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, look, you won't engage honestly with me? You don't want to commit with where this might take you, what this might mean for your life? Well, then, I don't have anything to say to you. It's a pretty scary statement from Jesus. Dishonest, rejecting hearts get nothing. We need to examine ourselves, don't we? When it comes to considering Jesus, who he really is, are we truly seeking? Do you really want to know? Would you submit your life if you came to realize he was Lord? Would you? If you think, hey, Carrie, why should I? Why should I submit to him, even, even if he is Lord? I mean, what does that mean? It's my life. Who does he think he is? Well, we're back to the same question, aren't we? It's the question. Who is he that he should claim such authority that he should ask for our lives? And that's what this next parable actually is about. You see, although Jesus doesn't directly answer them, he does answer them in a parable. It's a way for him to divide seeking hearts 
from non-seeking. It's a way of cutting through our spiritual dishonesty. All you have to do is read chapter 4 in Mark when he explains how parables work. He says, I speak in them so that some who are seeking will hear and understand, but those who are not will actually be left in more darkness. So let's read the parable, at least part of it. Verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent uh, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, at one level, this parable is, uh, is not complicated, is it? Its symbolism is pretty clear. The vineyard is clearly Israel, the people of God. Any Jew would understand this imagery. In the Old Testament, they were often referred to as God's beloved vineyard. We had uh, Isaiah 5 there read, that whole poem describing them as the vineyard and actually saying it in verse 7 of, of Isaiah Chapter 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah. Says it straight out. And and it's not just kind of a rare one-off illusion. The symbol is kind of part, as a vineyard, is part of their national identity. In fact, the temple that they're standing in right then has a 70-foot golden grapevine that goes across the top of the entrance from the porch to the Holy of Holies. They are God's special, privileged, cared-for vineyard. And of course, God in the parable, or I should say the planter of the vineyard, is God. The one who has established them and given them everything. And note the details of his provision here and care. Right? He, he, he planted the vineyard. In other words, he, he gave them their life. He started them as his people. He's the one who dug, digs the pit for, for, the, for the wine to, to be stored. He provides for them. He builds a tower for their protection and for storage. He's, he's taking care of them, creating them, sustaining them in every way. And who are the tenants that are to keep that vineyard that that he's leased to them? And they are to tend and grow it and then give him a share of the fruit. But they've decided to steal from the owner, God, just like we saw in the temple last week where he called them robbers, taking his due worship, his fruit. Well, it's obviously the Israelite leadership. The very men standing before him that he's talking to. Like the Israelite you know, leaders of, of old that we saw back in Isaiah, they neglected and abused their position for their gain, for their status, for their own authority, 
And the servant he sends, the servants, I should say, that he sends to collect his due, well, they are the prophets of old, aren't they? Who God sent to call his people back. But they were abused and killed over and over again. Elijah, driven into the wilderness. Isaiah, according to tradition, sawn in two. Zacharias stoned to death at the altar, John the Baptist beheaded, and, and many more. And who, of course, is the final one sent, the heir of the planter of the vineyard, his beloved son, who they will surely respect, but they decide to kill in an attempt to take it all for themselves and finally be rid of the owner of the planter. Who is that one? Well, obviously, it's Jesus the beloved son. This is the answer as to what is your authority? Who gave you the authority? By what authority do you do these things? He's the beloved son. It's the same answer that if they had thought about the question of John's baptism, they would have come to. It's the same answer all the way through. This is my beloved son. What is the authority of Jesus? Who does he think he is? He thinks he is. He knows he is the son of their creator God who planted them as a people and gave them life, who sustained them every day, who provided for all their needs and blessed them. He's the heir of that creator. Now at this point, I hope you're starting to see that this parable is bigger than just the Jews. It's the universal story of mankind, isn't it? Of each one of us. It echoes back to, to the garden, doesn't it? The vineyard goes to the garden where God gave Adam and Eve life and provision and every good blessing. Yet they rebelled against him and tried to take what was his, and they destroyed everything, including themselves. And they were kicked out. They were separated from God. They lost their blessing. They lost their life. You see, why should we submit to Jesus' authority as Lord? Because he is the son of our creator, God. The scriptures tell us that as his son, he is actually one in essence with him. He is our very creator. He gave us life and breath. He is the one who sustains us every day. Every good grace and blessing in our lives is from him, like the Garden of Eden, like the vineyard scene. It's all from him. It's all his. He's the owner. Why? Would we want not want to live under the authority of such a gracious son? But it's, it's the nature of sin, isn't it? We want to live like these Israelite leaders, taking all that is his and giving him nothing. We want to be living in his world with no recognition of him. Enjoying his creation and blessing while acting like he doesn't exist. Even trying to get rid of him. Trying to kill him off in the deluded belief that it will then all become ours. 
Uh, it's crazy. We use uh, science to try to edit him out of his own creation, coming up with theories that supposedly explain our genesis from nothingness. <laughs> we use philosophy to try and explain him as a delusion. This is the spirit of our world. This is what's taught in our universities. And somehow we think it's advancement and freedom if we can just get rid of this archaic God idea. But it's all a pathetic lie. Get rid of the life giver, and what do you gain? Get rid of the sustainer and blesser who's giving you everything good, and what do you gain? Well, nothing but death. Are you believing that lie? Do you really think that if you free yourself from the giver of life and blessing, if you claim your independence, your personal authority, you will gain life? My friends, Jesus' authority comes as he is the very son of our creator God who gave us life and blessing. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because he's also the son that we see in this parable, as we see in this parable, of the merciful Father. Not just the creator father, the merciful father. You can't miss the patience and mercy of God in this story. The planter of the vineyard sends how many servants to collect his due? One after another. Some they beat, some they killed, but they just keep coming, don't they? That's our God. That's our God that Jesus is, is the son of, that he's one with. A patient, persistent, steadfast God of mercy who comes after his people, giving them chance after chance after chance, even as they defy and abuse him. To the point, as you read it, that it almost seems ridiculous. Martin Luther said of this, this whole scene, he said, if I were God and the world treated me like this, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. And he would have. But it's so compelling, isn't it? There's nothing like ultimate authority and power that acts in patient mercy. Kind of the definition of love, and it's, it's beautiful and compelling, and it draws us in. Some of you know this, this patience and mercy in your own lives from God. It's very real. I've heard it in your testimonies. I was talking to somebody this summer who was telling me how he had no interest in God. He was doing his own thing, and God just came in, grabbed him. And just started pulling him in and making him his. He says, I, I had no interest. I wasn't going to do it. But God came after him and was merciful to him. I was talking to another of you who told me how God pursued you through years of rebellion and drug addiction and even crime and finally jail until you finally gave in to his mercy. And now you're receiving his healing and his blessing. I remember when uh, our former pastor, Paul Reese, moved here from Wales 
He had no idea that he would ever end up in Spokane, Washington. I met him in Australia at seminary. And then after I came here, I gave him a call when he was in Wales and said, come here and be my boss. He had no plans. He said no a couple times. Finally, he came here. And he's talking to his next-door neighbor about Christ. His next-door neighbor says, I just wish that God would send me some kind of sign. And he said, how about God brings a guy from Wales who's never heard of Spokane to move in next to you to tell you about Jesus? God pursues. And some of us, including me, have had God pursue us through many years, I think, of the most hideous rebellions, pious, prideful, empty, self-justifying religion, until we finally gave in. It's a compelling authority, mercy, isn't it? Would you trust and you know, surrender your life to such an authority, the one who created and blessed you and offers mercy? Would you give over all your life? You know, maybe there's just part of it that you really need to get, give over. And he won't, he's after you and you know it. He's asking you for your submission He's in relentless pursuit of your life, your whole life. The call of this text is submit. Give in. Receive his mercy. This is who Jesus is and why he has real authority. He's the son of our creator and sustainer, God, the son of our merciful father. But if that isn't enough incentive, we need to notice Something else that he is here, and that is he's the son of the judge. One thing you can't miss in this parable is that it kind of comes to climax with a question, doesn't it? The whole thing. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? After he sent all his servants... After he sent his very own beloved son, mercy after mercy after mercy, and they destroy them, and they destroy us. What will he do? I remember a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, we had a junior high director named John Hoschild, big burly guy with a beard, big teddy bear of a guy, and he was teaching the kids at Camp Crush that was about 50 kids that we had brought from this neighborhood, 7 to 11 years old. And he was teaching them this parable. And he taught it like this. He said, imagine that a powerful king one day decided to give to a people a beautiful candy orchard. The orchard had candy trees of every variety. And he went on about all the different kinds of candy trees that and he said, and he put a fence around it to keep out the wild candy-eating varmints. And he built a great storehouse for all their candy so it wouldn't rot. And he even provided great vats to keep all the soda pop. And it was all free for them. All the people had to do was tend it and take care of it 
and all the candy was theirs for life. And at this point, the kids were just kind of drooling. (laughs) He asked of them only one thing, he said. Once a year, he would send a servant who would collect some of the candy for him. But he said to them, you know what? What happened? They had all the candy, and they enjoyed it, and they loved it. And when he sent his servant, they wouldn't give him any candy. In fact, they beat him up. And he sent another servant, and another servant, and they beat him up, and they killed him. And finally, he sent his own son. Surely they would give his sons some of the candy due him but they didn't. They killed him. So thinking it would all be theirs. And then he posed the question, what should the king do? And there was complete outrage. (laughs) The kids started screaming and yelling, kick him out, kill them all, take the candy. (laughs) So even at a young age, they understood justice They were like, this is so wrong. It was pure evil. There must be punishment. Things must be put right. Now, this story is obviously a lot bigger than candy. It's about the greatest injustice ever. It's about us rejecting the creator and sustainer of our very lives. The one who's shown us patient mercy after mercy after mercy. It's about us robbing him of his due worship of our lives. It's about us destroying his son in wickedness and rebellion. You see, as Jesus shows up at the temple here looking for the fruits of worship but finding nothing but contempt and scorn and rejection, he is the landowner's son arriving at the vineyard, isn't he? This parable is happening in real time. In fact, by the end of the week, they will be nailing him to the cross. The something the scriptures make clear is a result of all our sin all our rejection but justice will come it must come the bible makes it clear that we will stand before god and that complete rejection of our life giver god will ultimately mean the forfeiting of our own life but here's the most amazing thing Jesus, as he stands here being rejected by his own people, is not only the son of our creator, the son of our merciful father, the son of our judge, and all those things himself. He is also, and finally, the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Look at verse 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. It's a quote from Psalm 118, which depicts a stone which the builders of Solomon's temple had had cast aside as unfit for the construction of the sacred building. 
as somehow becoming the cornerstone. It becomes, that rejected stone becomes the stone that holds the whole foundation together, the keystone of the temple of God that makes it all work. You see, Jesus, as he's going to head to the cross, will offer one last mercy. Because there, like like a lamb sacrificed on the altar in the temple, he will take on all our sin. He will take on all the punishment of God that we deserve, all the wrath, all the death, all the hell, and satisfy God's just judgment and then rise to life to open the way to the Father. What the temple was all about, reuniting God with his wayward people, that, that, that we may receive his, his blessing and life again and that we may give our fruits of worship to him. What the temple was all about, Jesus did at the cross with the sacrifice of his life. It's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous. This is Jesus' authority. Who does he think he is? (laughs) He thinks he's the creator, sustainer, mercy giver, judge, and savior. It's incredible. But look at the sad ending here in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They hear him. They even know that he's speaking about them. They're like, hey, he's speaking about us. But they're being sifted by this parable, aren't they? They don't really get it. And they walk away. They are so caught up in their fears of the people. Note that they started with the fear of the people in verse 33. He tells them through the whole parable, and they're still at the same place. They're caught in their fear of losing their authority and status. They're so caught up in it that they can't engage with who Jesus really is. There's no honesty in their questioning of Jesus. They aren't really seeing him, and they can't really see themselves. The beloved son of creation and life and blessing and mercy and judgment, the cornerstone of salvation is standing before them, and they walk away unchanged, living just as they were before, every action of their lives dictated by the fear of man. It's pathetic and it's sad. My friends, as I said at the beginning, what's really holding you back from giving your life fully over to Jesus? Is he not wonderful enough? Is he not loving and merciful enough? Does he not offer enough? Has he not given everything for for you? What more could he do? What lies are you believing that would keep you from trusting him, from accepting him as your Lord and Savior, from uh, uh, surrendering everything to him, every part of your life.
Don't just walk away like these guys. He has all authority as the beloved son of God. And he's offering you life, the life you were created for. Let's pray. Father, may this parable be real in our lives. May you use your Holy Spirit to help us see you and to see ourselves and to surrender, to receive your salvation, to be your vineyard, the children we were meant to be before you, to know life. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.